1941, the first group of soldiers started their mission to fight for their country. The Army Air Corps created an experimental all-black squadron of pilots to be trained in Tuskegee, Alabama. Interest was high and filled with excitement, and the men who came to Alabama for the program would be part of the 99th Pursuit Squadron and become known as the Tuskegee Airmen. Their courage, bravery, and strength brought changes in the military, abroad in other countries, and here at home. As the young men and women left families at home and journeyed off to train, they took with them the pride of their hometown, family, and friends. They may have known a little bit about what their future held, but most did not know they were going off to fight two wars, one with enemy soldiers and one with injustice and inequality. During a time when signs stated white only and no positions available when blacks applied for jobs, their fight was to prove that blacks were as capable as whites. Given the chance to fly and come back, the men proved themselves to all who doubted their abilities. The Tuskegee Airmen were the first to erode and dispel beliefs that blacks were not intellectually equal. They didn't stop until they were respected for their knowledge, skills, intellect, and their excellence. Today I tell the stories of their lives and a legacy which shapes our story today. How we, all humanity, is enhanced and advanced because of their fight for equality. In their own voices and the military scholars, family members and a beloved daughter who continues to be inspired and filled with pride as she learns more and more about her father's legacy, here are the stories of the Tuskegee Airmen. It's quarter miles travel where the adventure begins when you reach into your pocket. There's a story behind every quarter design, a story that can take you on an adventure of your own. From one-of-a-kind landmarks to hometown heroes, start your journey with Anita, one quarter mile at a time. Life is meant to be This year, 2021, as part of the U.S. Mint America the Beautiful Quarter Series, the 56th quarter and the last quarter in the series, the Tuskegee Airmen are honored on the reverse of the quarter. Pictured as a Tuskegee Airmen pilot suiting up to join the fight during World War II. Featured in the background is Moton Field Control Tower with two planes flying over. Their story starts in Germany in 1936 as Hitler gears up to take control in Europe, spreading fear throughout the continent. In 1939, Great Britain and France declare war on Germany. One year later, in 1940, the U.S. starts its first peacetime draft. All men between the ages of 21 and 35, regardless of race, are required to register. Now the U.S. is edging toward war, and although the U.S. passed legislation authorizing a permanent civilian pilot training program in 1938, it wasn't until 1940 that the War Department announced that the Civil Aeronautics Authority, in cooperation with the U.S. Army, would begin development of colored personnel for aviation service. 
Now this development didn't just happen. Edgar G. Brown, a black lobbyist for government employees, arranged for two young black pilots to fly from Chicago to Washington to meet with a little known U.S. Senator from Missouri. Harriet Truman met Chauncey Spencer and Dale White. He said, if you guys have guts enough to fly that from Chicago, I've got guts enough to do all I can to help you. Hope it finally arrived. Congress approved funding for black pilots to train at five different colleges, historically black colleges that is, and Tuskegee was one of the colleges. Tuskegee was founded by Booger T. Washington and was already known as a school of excellence. Alfred C. Anderson would head flight instructions. In 1941, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, during a Rosenwald Fund trustees meeting at Tuskegee, visited the airfield. Interested in taking a flight to see the field, Mrs. Roosevelt challenged the white men traveling with her by saying, I've always heard that colored people can't fly, but I see them flying all around here. Against the objections of those traveling with her, the open-minded First Lady asked to fly with Alfred Chief Anderson. They took off on an hour-long flight. When she returned, she convinced her husband to use his influence to make some changes. But unfortunately, this did not change attitudes and stereotypes of black men and women wanting to serve in the field of aviation. The attitude that blacks were intellectually inferior continued. It was said that you can't use black pilots because there were no black mechanics to work on the aircraft. Segregation would prohibit soldiers from working across racial lines. The first aviation class of 13 cadets began in July of 1941, focusing on meteorology, navigation, and instruments. Those cadets who successfully completed the training were transferred to the segregated Tuskegee Army Airfield. In 1925, the Army studied the performance of black soldiers in World War I. It was believed that blacks were inferior, unintelligent, and incompetent, but those young men were proving them wrong. Five of the 13 cadets in the first class go on to complete the Army Air Corps pilot training program and become the nation's first black military pilots. In 1942, the first black pilots graduate from Tuskegee Army Airfield. From 1941 to 1945, the newly established Tuskegee Army Airfield proved blacks could be trained and mobilized in the technical and sophisticated tests just as their white counterparts. Among the five is Captain Benjamin O. Davis Jr., who later became leader of the Tuskegee Airmen during World War II and the first black to rank as general in the U.S. Air Force. The 99th Pursuit Squadron was ready for duty and later became the 99th Fighter Squadron. They deployed to North Africa, Sicily, and Italy for ground support. In early 1944, the 332nd Fighter Group came overseas also to fly support missions. However, in the summer of 1944, they started flying P-51s to escort B-17 and B-24 bombers. The Red Tails were born. It's important to note, though, that this road to acceptance was hard-earned. The NAACP and civil rights leaders pressured Roosevelt for equality within the armed forces. William H. Hasty, an attorney who earned his law degree from Harvard, became the first African-American federal judge appointed by President Roosevelt. He worked as a race relations advisor to the Roosevelt administration. 
Hasty had his focus on changing what he saw as discrimination and injustice in the military rank. The New York Times quoted him as saying, the racial situation in the military was far from what it should be. Judge Hasey's push to rewrite policies for blacks to receive advanced officer training. In 1943, he resigned from his position in protest of the racial segregation and discrimination in the armed forces. This one step brought national attention to his actions. His efforts, along with many other civil rights leaders, pressured the government to make changes. Philip Randolph, Walter F. White, and Langston Hughes, who wrote about discrimination, are just a few who fought to bring attention to what was going on in the day-to-day -day lives of African Americans in the military. Hasty is credited for influencing and shaping some of the strongest attacks against discrimination. In 1948, Harry S. Truman's 9981 executive order called for equal opportunity in the armed forces. In 1949, the Air Force became the first armed services to integrate. As the fight for equality was moving along in the halls of the Capitol, black men and women from around the U.S. were ready to step forward for their country and to make their mark on the world. Just as the dreams and desires of youth at any time, these young men and women wanted to branch out, make a difference in the world, and reach their dreams. This desire will always be a driving force in the human race, regardless of the color of your skin. One young man from Chicago, O. Lawton Wilkerson Jr., also known as Wilk, heads out to become a Tuskegee Airman. Wilk was 18 years old when he signed up. His love for flying was fulfilled with model airplanes, but here he had a chance to take that love to the sky. In an interview with Princeton Military Museum, Wilt shares his experience as a Tuskegee Airman. He starts off by telling us how he signed up for training and how they learned about the Tuskegee program. Actually, I always wanted to fly since uh, being quite young. I used to build model airplanes and all that sort of thing. I've got tales to tell about that too. But a friend of mine and I, Louis Siners, were still in our senior year in high school and we went down to volunteer to get into flight training passed the test and were accepted. And within two weeks after graduation, we were on the train going south to become a part of that. We were interested <clears throat> in aviation, and uh, we pursued the, the CAP, Civilian Air Patrol, etc. and that's probably where we got the insight into it. After training, he headed south, his first time south of the Mason-Dixon line. Wilk shares his experience. Sent to um, Montgomery, on the train and starting out we had uh, accommodations that allowed uh, a Pullman service. You'd sleep overnight in the, in the uh, berths, whatever the Pullman section. And uh, that was nice, first time in that experience, uh, a bit tense. Turns out by the time we got up we were south of the Mason-Dixon line and all of that broke down and we had to go to the coach up next to the coal tender up in the front of the train and uh, other people went back to the club cars or wherever else they were seated. So that was quite a difference in an experience too. First real hard test of segregation. Yeah, we had right. segregation back in Chicago Heights where I was born. Wilt tells us about his training and shares a funny and hair-raising story, giving us an insight look into the training experience to become an aviator. Yeah, well, I actually went to Keesler Field, Alabama first and uh, did the basic training, for just the military training, and then onward to Tuskegee. Somewhere in there we took a test called the Stainine Score, similar to an uh, IQ test, 
except that rather than measuring IQ, they supposedly measured who was most apt to be successful as a pilot as opposed to being a gunner or a navigator, etc. And my buddy and I got separated at that point. Uh, I went on to Tuskegee and uh, went through the training there. Well, I got selected to take pilot training, sent to Tuskegee, the institute as it was at that time, it's now a university. And we trained out of Moton Field that uh, Dan just mentioned. And my first aircraft was the Stearman, and it was a big airplane. I had an instructor whose name was Charles Johnson. And I recall the first uh, day we went up, we were given an orientation ride. And I thought I knew a little bit about airplanes. We got up to a safe altitude, a couple thousand feet. <laughs> and he said, uh, here, the controls are yours. Do whatever you'd like to do. <laughs> the idea being that you were going to sit there and you're going to try to fly the thing straight and level. Well, I had built model airplanes before, and I was very interested in aviation, so I thought I knew what I was doing. And I was going to roll the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and I did roll it. I rolled it upside down. but. Johnson wasn't expecting that, <laughs> and uh, the, that Stearman, by the way, is a two-seater tandem, and the instructor's behind you, and you see his face in a mirror that's up in front of you. <laughs> well, when we got upside down before he could roll it back out, which I really didn't know how to do anyway, <laughs> he's hanging on because when it went upside down, he hit his seat belt and the safety harness came loose. Mm. And he's looking up there and he's cussing me, but I couldn't hear him because the communication had broken loose as well. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I couldn't roll out and he was unable to really manage the plane, so we did a split S out. That's when you take the aircraft from upside down, pull back on the stick and it does that. Good thing we had a thousand feet. <laughs> so he took me back to the airport and when, as we taxied down the line coming back to our parking space, he said, that guy was trying to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Except the guy wasn't the word he used. Right, <laughs> right. <clears throat> the training went on, and uh, when you mention that, the last thing you hear before you solo, and by the way, in the Air Force, you had to learn to fly in eight hours of instruction. And that uh, wow. may sound like a lot of time, but if you're flying a very light plane, that's not, not bad, but uh, if your first plane is a Stearman, with a lot of horsepower and a heavy, heavier aircraft, eight hours is not very much. So what they do is they take you out after your seven or so hours, and the guy finally taxi down to the end of the strip and crawls out of the plane and says, okay, fool, go kill yourself. <laughs> Wilkerson finished his training as a pilot for the B-25 aircraft, and now the war is ending. So what does an aviator do in this situation? one who has opened doors that would influence the armed forces for years to come. Yes, I came in, uh, my training was finished a couple of months after the war in Europe was over. And uh, they didn't know what to do with us, so I saw a lot of activity after then. It had nothing to do with flying. I became, for instance, uh, the lifeguard at the officers club at Lockburn Army Air Base, and I couldn't <laughs> swim worth a nickel. <laughs> Commercial aviation would be a natural fit. At least that's what you would think. Wilk shares what happens when he turns his attention to flying the friendly skies after returning home. And I had training in multi-engine. and would have been a natural um, candidate to fly commercially when I got back home. Found out that they not only would not hire me, they wouldn't even take my application. 
And by the time they did start taking black people, I was too old, so I didn't get to fly commercially when I came back home. I would also have liked to have stayed in the service. However, I was inducted in the Army of the United States, as it was known, which was temporary in its inception. And when the war was over, they didn't know what to do with us, so eventually they sent us back home. Aviators who are not able to fly, what happens to their identity? With the Tuskegee Airmen, they created an organization where that identity is used as a spotlight on the limited opportunities for airmen who serve their country. Yeah, just about everybody knows that the dodo is a bird that can't fly. And uh, when the black pilots came back home, they find, as I did, that uh, they couldn't fly. The dodo became extinct because it couldn't fly. Looked like it was going to be that way for the black pilots who came back home. However, a group decided that it wasn't going to be that way. They're going to put maximum effort in trying to perpetuate the legend, and that they did. Um, they formed the Tuskegee Airmen Incorporated, and we have a Chicago chapter that, having seen this situation develop, decided they were going to call their chapter the Dodo Chapter because they were going to make sure that the legend was perpetuated. Wilkes shares what Tuskegee was like in the racially segregated South. While the Tuskegee Airfield offered a safe place to be your authentic self, once outside of the area, there was another experience. Wilkes shares his personal experience of a soldier coming home to a country where there is still attitudes of segregation and discrimination. There was very little segregation at Tuskegee because Tuskegee was all black. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Parrish was white, but uh, most of the officers under, under him and Everybody who ran the field were black, so there was no segregation there until you went into town. And that was a different story. Uh, Tuskegee, the town, is a small place, and they had what was typical of, uh, and probably still is of many small towns, a town square, kind of a grassy area in the middle of the town. And you could be in town and doing whatever you'd like, within reason until 10 o'clock at night, at which point you had to be waiting for the bus to go back to the base on a particular corner of this town square. Otherwise, uh, the local cop would come by and pick you up and put you in jail until the, the uh, military police came to pick you up and take you back to the base. So when you went to town, you felt the discrimination, but uh, not on base. I remember, uh, as I mentioned to you, they had eight hours to learn to fly in a fairly hard plane to fly. Went through a lot of training. Uh, Two-thirds of all the people who attempted that flight training got washed out, sent to other branches of service and some few home. Finally, you get your wings and your commission. After receiving that, I decided I'm going to go and visit my relatives. And I'm dressed in my full regalia, my wings are shining, I'm a new officer. And I uh, get a ride with some guy who had a nice car on the base, and we took us to Atlanta. And then we dispersed. In order to get out, Shambly was the name of the place they lived, a little suburb then of the city, which is now part of Atlanta. And I had to catch a bus to go out to Shambly. Stand on the street corner, catch the bus, get on and sit down. And they told me I had to go to the back of the bus. Here I am, a brand new officer with my shiny wings. And I had to go to the back of the bus. I remember that to this day. We've come a long way, but we've still got a way to go. 
Those hardships and struggles did not go unnoticed. There were many young men and women who were inspired by the Tuskegee Airmen to not only become pilots, to aspire to and reach for whatever their goal might be. Inspired by the Tuskegee Airmen, W.O. Smith wanted to become an aviator. Although years later after World War II, he experienced discrimination and racial divide too. Today, after retiring from the Air Force, he is a torch barrier for the Tuskegee Airmen and a member of the Atlanta chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen Organization. I had a chance to speak with W.O. and ask him about his experience going to training and choosing to become a pilot. I was going in the Navy, believe it or not. And uh, when I was 16 years old, I was going, I went by the Navy recruiting office and I walked in, uh, well, it was all of them was combined at that time. And I walked in and I, and this guy, uh, never forget him, Staff Sergeant Love. He said, I want you to go ahead and take the test. The Navy's uh, there out to lunch. I said, okay. So I uh, took a test and uh, I told him I was 17. And he said, uh, wouldn't you like to take the, uh, the physical that you passed and take the uh, mental test and everything? I said, uh, how about two weeks, which was going to be my 17th birthday. And I went to Kentucky. I'm from Cincinnati. And I took the uh, physical and the mental test. And then they said, now, wait a minute, I want you to take another test. <laughs> so I, I took this other test. And then I didn't know what it was all about. Then everyone wanted to talk to me about going into their branch of service, the Marines, the Army, and whatnot. And when I went back, uh, the guy said, uh, well, uh, when you like to leave? Then I had to tell him I was 17 years of age, and, and I was going to need my parents' permission. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I'd like to leave in two weeks. And two weeks was on my mother's birthday, May 31st. And... They signed the paper. My mother didn't want to because I was her firstborn. It took a while for them to uh, to do that, and I left. I went to San Antonio, Texas for 13 weeks, and then I went uh, airborne uh, on flying status and radar as a radar operator. Now, originally, I was stationed in, uh, in uh, Massachusetts, and from there, I went to... Uh, South Carolina, Jacksonville Naval Air Station, and then Europe. I went to Spain. I was in Spain and Spain for three years. I asked W.O. to tell us a little bit more about his time in the service, in particular where he was stationed. During my time uh, in the service was was in Europe. Uh, I could say Spain, uh, France, Germany, part of England, and Casablanca, which I enjoyed. World, World War II was over when I went in. That was all over. I didn't even, even, didn't even know I was poor until I went into the military. <laughs> they, they told me I was poor. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, I, you know, I was happy. I, mm. And uh, although I felt a lot of discrimination while I was in there, I, my intention was not to stay in the service. Uh, my intention was to get in and get out. And, and get the benefits that was available. I got married after being in there three years. And, and as I was processing for discharge, I got an assignment to go to Madrid, Spain as an advisor. And uh, I always wanted to go to Spain. Mm-hmm. And I asked my wife, I said, uh, what do you think, you want to go to Spain? She said, yes. 
Well, that, so I re-enlisted and went to Spain as a teaching air defense to the Spaniards. That was my, one of my favorite assignments. And I think that one of my best assignments. I was there for three years and I almost got discharged over there. I, I fell in love with the country. Oh, wow. uh, I saw all of Europe as, I could, as much as I could see. And, and I didn't want to come back to the United States, to tell you the truth. And, and then uh, I, instead of coming back to the United States, I buried my son in uh, a little village outside of uh, Spain, mm. called Turhome Village. And then uh, my wife and I went to Germany. And uh, I was in a little town called Würzburg. That's where my other daughter, my daughter was born, Würzburg, Germany. And I was stationed at a, at a radar unit in Giebelstadt, Germany. And I stayed there for a year as my daughter was born there. And uh, we came back to the United States and I was stationed in Tucson, Arizona. Okay. Yeah. And I stayed there for almost three years. Then I went to uh, electronic counter countermeasure class, uh, the first class that they had for defense of the United States in electronics. Although they didn't want me to go there either because of the color of my skin. I knew that, but they didn't have to worry about it. Uh, uh, it was 10 Division in the United States during that time in uh, air defense. And they're supposed to take in the top 10, uh, one out of each division, go to this class, the school, first class. And they went through uh, two of my, uh, I don't know, uh, fellow airmen. And then they, they said, well, we may as well, we got to send Smith. And I went. And I, and I should have gone in first, but I should have been the first pick. But uh, I got to uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, and looked around, and there was 10 of us in the class. It was a small class. We were setting the curve, and five of us were black. It was African-American. Mm -hmm. And they had gone through the same thing that I had gone. Because during that time, the military, what they would do, they set up a curve uh, based on uh, the class. And we said we're going to do our best to set the Said so high that uh, there'd be no one can beat the uh, scores that we would get. So we uh, sat there. We took 11 tests. Four of us made 100 on those 11 tests. Mm -hmm. And one guy missed one question. And he got an 84 on one, one of the tests. He got 100 on the other. And they came in there and said there'd be no undergrad. And we were proud of that. HWO to share with me when the name Tuskegee Airmen was first used. Uh, the Tuskegee Airmen did not come about until later on. I think, you re if you recall, in, in 1949, the, uh, they became the Tuskegee Airmen because they wanted to put the, uh, that school as far south as they could go. Mm. They could have been Howard University. They could have been in Ohio. They could have been in Illinois. Well, they went to Tuskegee. And when they went to Tuskegee, Alabama, because as I talked to Pouncey, Dr. Pouncey, who was 98 years old, when I talked to Dr. Pouncey, he was in school to become a navigator in B-25. And that's where he went. Uh, uh, down there, some went to Biloxi, and some went into Texas. But the majority of them went to Tuskegee. And when they came out of Tuskegee, everyone, regardless of where you went to school that you would consider Tuskegee Airmen, because that's where they set the school up to train the pilots 
under Chief Anderson. That's Chief Anderson was uh, the first black uh, down there in that area who bought his own airplane and taught himself to fly because the white man wouldn't teach him. It took him two weeks, just run up and down the field. Then he took off and taught himself to fly. Definitely. And he was the first one you went to for training. And then you went to, had your white instructor. For most of us, when we think about the Tuskegee Airmen, we think about pilots and we think about men. But there were many more people with different positions and also women that were involved with the Tuskegee Airmen. I asked W.O. to share a little bit more about that. Sarah Plummer, who lived in Decatur, she, uh, she kept the flight records. She was a civilian, and she kept the flight records of the man who was going through flight training. And she is considered a original documented Tuskegee Airmen. Anyone that was affiliated with the program, whether you was a civilian or in the military, you are considered a documented, during that time, a documented original Tuskegee Airmen. You could have been making the beds up in the barracks. You could have been a groundkeeper. You could have been a cook. Anything that you had to do with the Tuskegee Airmen during that experiment, you are considered a Tuskegee Airmen regardless of your color. Mm -hmm. That's right, because you had white instructors. And so they're Tuskegee Airmen. Like uh, my, my best friend, Chuck Dryden, who uh, bless his soul passed in 209, he, uh, he was a pilot and his wife was a nurse. And his wife, he from New York and his wife gathered a bunch of nurses. And they said, well, if we're gonna have black pilots, they're gonna have black nurses take care. And he wound up marrying Irma, Irma and uh, down there in Tuskegee. And she was a Tuskegee Airman. She just passed here recently. She was 100 years old, 100 years old. I asked W.O., how could regular folks like myself get involved with the Tuskegee Airman Organization? All I have to do is check our website. Uh, just type in Atlanta chapter, Atlanta Tuskegee Airman, and you'll see what we're doing for is uh, the educational scholarship program for the little kids. Uh, we have set up, uh, uh, we try to do this every year, where we send five from the Atlanta area out to uh, our headquarters. I hope they get selected for scholarships. And we have, uh, uh, as a civilian, it costs $100, $100 a year to be a member. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then you'll go through our little class, and you'll become a torchbearer, and uh, we'll teach you all about the Tuskegee Airmen, and you go out there and you can talk about us. <laughs> And we have what we call a task program, and this program is outstanding. And it's uh, a week long. We have it every summer for one week. And we have uh, 30 kids, a student from the age of 13 to 18. After we take you through the Hartfield International Airport and uh, Lockheed and the other little places. And then eventually at Friday, we hope to get you on the plane so you fly up. We won't let you take off, though, but we'll let you, once you got airborne, we'll let you take control and get the feeling of it. Because we realize everybody, uh, everyone's not going to want to be uh, in the military. We understand that. And some of them going to be doctors, lawyers, school teachers. Mm -hmm. And uh, some uh, uh, decide they're going to make it a career. And if things work out right, uh, like uh, year before last, we had four that were selected, went to Kansas City. 
for that uh, uh, four-month training, and they had their pilot license. Having a chance to go to Tuskegee and see firsthand where so much of this action took place is a great opportunity. I asked W.O. to tell me about a visit to Tuskegee and what we could expect to see. Well, uh, the museum is still there down in Tuskegee. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, uh, they got the old aircraft. They got the builder's name up to B.O. Davis. And a good friend of mine, uh, uh, Chappie James, he stopped me from retiring twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, named after him down there and you see the airplane you see what they're going through they show you a little movie and all this and you have lunch and everything else and you, and you get a chance to hear some of the true stories about what happened during world war ii these are uh, uh great heroes of mine he's a good friend wo was inspired by the tuskegee airmen to go into the armed forces so i asked him what legacy does he believe that the Tuskegee Airmen have left for us? Well, these men, like I said, they even set a, a pace for me. Uh, like I said, when I went in and I saw they, they, they're humble. They, they didn't know they was uh, going to be heroes uh, uh, or whatnot, but these are my heroes. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I take upon them that they had done some things that would never be duplicated. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they went through some stuff that... Uh, I know it happened in other countries with different races because of dictatorship and things of that nature, but uh, in our case, it was segregation, fighting two wars. Uh, the, the Americans didn't want us to fly, and the Germans wished that we weren't flying. Yeah. They, they were, the Germans hated us when we were flying. They gave us all kinds of names. But when they saw those red tails come up there, they knew that we were not going to run. Mm-hmm. So we're going to steady and fight. And that's what they did. Mm-hmm. And even though 66 were killed uh, during World War II, either, but only six were shot down and killed. Wow. You think about that. Yeah. Only six were shot down and killed. Mm-hmm. And, we, and we shot down over 111 of the airplanes. Uh, 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 Lieutenant Colonel Harvey up there, who retired, he was one of the first top guns. See, people don't know this. First top gun in 1949. Mm-hmm. He was the first top gun. And people don't know this. And uh, flying the, uh, the old uh, P-47. My conversation with W.O. was filled with so much great information. He is such an inspiration to all of the youth that he works with as part of the Atlanta chapter of the Tuskegee Airmen Organization. Now, I also had a chance to talk with another member of the Atlanta chapter, and that is with Reverend Larry Bussey. Now, what's unique about Larry is that he had a grand uncle that was a Tuskegee Airman, and that has inspired him to get involved with the organization so that he can also make a difference. I start off my conversation with him where he tells me how he's related to a Tuskegee Airman. When I became a Tuskegee Airman, well, I went to, again, I went to a Veterans Day program about maybe six, it's been long, about 10 years ago. And uh, I liked what I saw at the meeting. And then I found out that I had a great uncle that was actually a Tuskegee Airman. And he flew in the 32nd Airborne Division with General Davis. So that made me an ancestor of an original Tuskegee Airman. 
That's and true. from that point, as well, let me continue the legacy that he had. His name was Charlie Bussey, and he was a lieutenant colonel. And um, I said, wow. So I have an answer that was Tuskegee Airmen. So yes, I'm in the right place as a torchbearer to carry on his name and to continue, continue the legacy of the Tuskegee Airmen. So that's how I came about being a member. Now, I've heard there are many, many legends as to how those tales became read on the airplanes. So I asked Larry if he would share with us how the P-51 tales became read. Well, they went out on a mission, from my understanding. And one of the planes got shut up so bad, it came back like a little turkey, had like a turkey lost its tails or whatever, right? Mm. So this particular commander, had, they had painted something else, but this commander said, no, I'm one of the pilots, and I don't want that on my plane. Change it to something else. So the only paint they had on that base was red. Mm. So they painted his plane with the tail red. So when he painted his plane red, all the other pilots said, well, I want my plane the same way. <laughs> so everybody had red tails. And throughout that time, they were identified as the rail tail unit, the Negro red tail unit for the Tuskegee Airmen. Although there was a lot of discrimination and injustice, the Tuskegee Airmen, because of all of their successes, did receive awards. I asked Larry to share that with us. Most of them got the Flying Cross with one of the highest medals that you could receive in the, in the military. Mm -hmm. um, they got the uh, Air Force Distinguished Medals. They got numerous awards for their comeback experience, for their comeback um, duties and responsibilities. Uh, but I know for the one was the highest medal that was the Distinguished Cross they received. So when the movie of Red Tails came out, they were actually the individuals who were the, I'm not going to say executive producers, but they were the advisors of the movie itself, telling the writers and the producers and everybody who was involved to create the Red Tail movie about the detailed things that happened. That movie really brought the Tuskegee Airmen to reality. Any conversation that you're having regarding this time in U.S. history, discrimination, injustice, inequality comes into the conversation. So I asked Larry if he would share with me any personal experiences that he has had with discrimination, in particular around his military career. Well, I can tell you this from my personal experience as well. I did two tours in Vietnam. And when I went through basic training, of course, I had white drill instructors. I had white colleagues that was there with me. Those guys didn't want to associate. Uh, we were called the N-word by some of the drill instructors. and uh, But they sent us off to Vietnam together. But my job was to fight for my country and also protect my colleague. But I'm fighting for the guy that's in the Fox over there who called me the N-word. But during the time of that, everything was changed. He didn't see me as a black man. He saw me as a soldier trying to protect his friend trying to protect the country, also cover his back. But when we get back to the States, I'm back that N-word again, and I'm the lowest thing than a, than a, a snail on the ground. I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. mm. And we didn't get the respect that we should have gotten as veterans coming from Vietnam. But I felt the same way. I know how they felt now back in their day, during the Jim Crow era, and during that time frame, because we got a little bit of that during the time I was in the military as well. 
Now, the Tuskegee Airmen faced injustice and discrimination throughout their years in the armed forces. And when they returned home, most of them stepped forward and became involved in the civil rights movement. Captain Richard Harris returned to his home in Montgomery and worked at his family's drugstore as a pharmacist. He also played a key role in several civil rights movements, the Montgomery bus protests, and he courageously welcomed the Freedom Riders into his home. On the 60th anniversary of the Freedom Ride, I had the honor of speaking with his daughter, Dr. Valda Montgomery. She and I talked about her father because I wanted to know more about this man who had fought two wars while he was a Tuskegee Airman, the war against our nation's enemy, and also the war against injustice. And here he was, back home now, stepping forward and even bringing the, the fight into his drugstore where he actually held planning meetings for the Montgomery bus protests and then into his home. I definitely wanted to talk with her about her father and learn more about him. Uh, but as far as the drugstore was concerned, we had a family drugstore, Dean Drugstore, that my grandfather and my grandmother owned. Mm. And they had to hire a pharmacist because neither one of them, of course, was a pharmacist. And so when my dad came out of school in 1941, uh, uh, he would work in the drugstore. And then, of course, he got called to... Uh, to join the Tuskegee Airmen Group. And then upon leaving the Tuskegee Airmen Group, he came back to Montgomery. He was married by this time. And, and uh, he started working again in the drugstore and noticed that all of the money was going in to pay a pharmacist. So he went to pharmacy school. And then he came out of pharmacy, he went to Xavier University. And when he came out of uh, pharmacy school in 1953, he took over the drugstore as owner and operator and pharmacist. Valda shares the steps that her father took to become a Tuskegee Airman. Uh, well, uh, as I said, he finished Fisk in 1941, and after he had come to Chicago to work on a master's degree, when he was uh, recruited to, to join the Tuskegee Airman group. And he was in the class with uh, um, uh, Charles McGee, that's now a Brigadier General, the 99th group. Right. And so when they went to Tuskegee for the training, after the training and they uh, had obtained their wings, they were sent to Walterboro, South Carolina for combat training and to learn aerial, um, I guess you may call it aerial maneuvers. And it was at that time that he, uh, he met my mom because she was in Charleston, South Carolina, and they went over there to, quote, socialize or to, he wanted to visit one of his classmates from Fisk, and she was not there, but my mom was. So as my mom would say, the rest is history. But his <laughs> friend was Charles Dryden. Uh, his best friend was Charles Dryden, and he's the one that's most notably known as A-Train. So, but uh, yeah, and he, they said that the experience in, in, in Walterboro, they call it the, the Walterboro Exile, because... Um, of the segregation, the heavy segregation that was over there and how horrible they were treated as black airmen and black servicemen that the, uh, it was also a POW camp for German POWs and the German POWs had better facilities than they had. So they had to endure all of that. I mean, they really defied the stereotypes and, and sought to fight for our country regardless of all the racism and inequality that you know, that they were facing, they still wanted to fight. The black pilots were not able to go to, even the officers that were there, because most of them, most of the Tuskegee Airmen were officers by that time, mm -hmm. you know, and they weren't allowed to go to the officers club. They had to go to 
whatever they would find in any city, like pretty much like we had to do during civil rights, you find the black section of town in order to be able to socialize Is with it, other people. But they said it was a horrible experience uh, to be there in Walterboro, South Carolina. Movies and documentaries have now been shared to show the day-to-day lives of the Tuskegee Airmen. Valda shares her thoughts about the movie Red Tails. Uh, the Tuskegee Airmen movie, the HBO Tuskegee Airmen movie with Lawrence Fishburne, um, really gave me an insight. And the more I find out about my dad's experience, that movie really tapped into a lot of the issues that they had to uh, to endure. Of course, it is a movie, but it still tapped into a lot of the uh, issues that they had to uh, to endure during that time. Growing up in the 60s, parents sheltered their children from some of the harsh realities. But what did that do? That didn't allow the full picture of everything that was going on. Children may have bore witness to some of the outstanding things that were going on, but may not have fully been able to grasp exactly the magnitude of what they were actually experiencing until later on in life. How do I want to say? I think that they sheltered us from a lot of the things yep. that was were going on, you know. Or that's one of the reasons that they didn't talk about it, mm-hmm. uh, put it that way. Uh, that's why I didn't know a whole lot about my dad with the Tuskegee Airmen, other than that he was one, and uh, he would always talk about his friend Charlie Dryden, and that was one of the things that always excited me about Tuskegee Airmen. And but I still didn't know uh, what they had actually gone through, you know. He he saw the wings that he had earned. Uh, he gave the wings to my grandmother, and that was his mom, and uh, we have pictures of her wearing his wings. Mm. He wasn't married at the time, so of course you give it to your mom mm-hmm. instead of your wife. And then uh, uh, hearing the different Air Force bases, Godman Field, uh, which was in Kentucky, this is where mom and dad married, and then the fact that they flew, used to do flights from Walterboro to Selfridge Field, I think that was in Michigan, or whatever, but those were the, the words that I heard. And as I'm getting older and I'm reading the books, I'm able to put this story together of why you were at these different airports, I mean, uh, army bases, right. you were flying into these different places. Why were you stationed mm-hmm. here and there? And um, uh, one of the things that has happened recently is that we're going through some things since my mom passed, we started going through some things that she had saved. And we have found so much so many artifacts and things uh, from the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, yearbooks from Godman Field and uh, my dad's uniform and pictures and just all kinds of things, just just really all kinds of things. So, um, you know, of course, we're holding on to them and and, and saving them to share with the younger family members to, to pass down the history of their grandfather or their great grandfather. Valda's father became very involved with the civil rights movement, directly involved with the Montgomery bus boycott. His drugstore was one of the places that was used for strategy and planning meetings. It was privately owned so that people could gather there. They would come in town, they'd leave their packages, and they would gather there as well as have strategy sessions there at night because it, there was a lunch counter that was in there. So you had uh, Martin King and, and all of those leaders. Rosa Parks actually worked right down the street. Uh, at Montgomery Fair as a seamstress and uh, Fred Gray and that group. And that's, if you visit Montgomery, you'll see how close everything is. So that's mm-hmm. just walking two blocks or so to come to the drugstore for meetings. Uh, it was also the, um, he operated the transportation, coordinated the transportation for the riders 
to come and get their rides or to, to call people to come and pick them up at the drugstore so it was a safe place so that the policeman could not uh, bother them uh, there. But it, when you mentioned that about him being in the Tuskegee Airmen and being with the civil rights, a lot of the people have identified him as being a champion civil rights activist or an ardent race man. And I also found out that quite a number of the civil, um, excuse me, quite a number of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, once they left the uh, the Air Force or the Army Corps, they um, became civil rights leaders mm-hmm. in, in their own right. So it was not surprising that he would do the same thing. But the more I learn about him, the more I find that it's really in, it's in my DNA to do what I'm doing. I did not realize how strong yeah. he was about it because you would never know him if you knew how his personality. That's the farthest thing that you would see from him because he was always smiling and jovial and, and friendly to everybody, but he could, uh, he was straight. He was, he was all about the black race, all mm-hmm. about fairness and justice. Because the Tuskegee Airmen had the unique experience of traveling and living in foreign countries and experiencing what race relations were like there, Comparing them then to what they experienced at home, I wonder if maybe that encouraged them to be more proactive with getting involved with civil rights and being leaders in the civil rights movement. I asked Valda what her thoughts were around that. You know, it's, that's possible. That's a good point. Uh, I had never thought about it like that. Um, I do know that the treatment that, that the Tuskegee Airmen, not necessarily my dad's group, but with the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, that was stationed it was in one of the northern states here in, in the United States, and they were treated so poorly. And they actually did um, uh, took a stance about that, being able to go into the officers' club. And that's when they talk about the double victory. I don't know if you've heard that the double V, the double mm-hmm. victory for the Tuskegee Airmen. Not only did they win it with World War II, but they also won that um, segregation uh, issue. That was uh, that they had experience in one of the northern states. So uh, mm. if you go to the uh, Tuskegee Airmen Museum, that's what you'll hear about the double V, and that double V is the double victory that they both um, managed to achieve. I asked Valda to share some final thoughts about her father. He loved being a part of it. He would sing the 99th song, and as I said, we just did not pay any attention to that at all. It was just, oh well, this is my dad, <laughs> and. Uh, then as time has passed, you know, as I said, you, you become extremely proud mm-hmm. and you want to know more and more about what that was about. But he's just a person that I'm finding more and more. It's like I'm feeling an onion, as they say. I'm yep. trying to get to the core. I'm peeling back so many layers mm-hmm. of this man and who he was. And uh, uh, I'm proud to be his daughter. I know Val is doing research on the Tuskegee Airmen and her father to find out more information. What he is so highly recognized for is his civil rights leadership with the Montgomery bus boycott and with the Freedom Ride. He opened his home to those Freedom Riders who needed a place to get away from the mobs. They were being beaten, they were being kicked, and there were chants, and it was just a horrifying situation. But he opened his home, courageously opened his home, because what could have happened with the mobs that were there? He opened his home to those Freedom Riders. And this is the 60th year celebrating the Freedom Ride. Dr. Richard Harris from Tuskegee Airmen to Civil Rights Leader. As we wrap up the podcast, I wanted to ask Larry the same thing that I asked W.O. 
what legacy does he feel the Tuskegee Airmen have left, as well as the organization now that continues to do things in the communities that they have chapters in? How are they leaving a legacy? The legacy that I see they led was that it wouldn't be, if it wasn't for them today, and what they went through, it wouldn't be what we are as far as, I'm a veteran, of course, I was in the Marines and the Army, and what they went through opened doors for us to serve our country, mm. not only for men, but also for women. My mother was also, she was a wax during World War II, so she was in the military, but they set the pace for everybody, for every pilot that's flying with Delta, you name the airline, they set the pace. Mm. And their legacy tells me as a whole that we fought for this country. We wasn't recognized for what we did in the country till after a certain thing happened with Franklin Delano Roosevelt and President Truman. Then it came about to show that these men was just as equal as others that was already flying in the other diverse race, in the culture of the Caucasian race. So it brought a bond to everything that we were doing as Blacks to the military. It showed the country that we can do just as well as others, but they also opened the doors for us to follow them in our military career and also civilians. And I'm so glad that that happened because it opened the doors for a lot of pilots. Matter of fact, in our program that we've had over the years with our youth and our uh, STEM program and our piloting program, we've had some now that are actually pilots. Mm. We've had some to attend the uh, Air Force Academy selected by their congressman. So the Tuskegee Airmen, the Red Tails unit, opened the doors for a lot of us right now in this country, for blacks and whites and all diverse cultures. Yeah. They were the trailblazers during that time. They opened the door for all of us. Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and I'm just so thankful for that courage they had, that dignity they carried, the integrity they carried. Mm-hmm. And now it has continued to be like a domino effect. It still exists within the chapters across the nation, also exists in the military, especially in the Air Force. The Air Force painted one of their fighter jets with the red tail. And so that again, that was a symbol of showing the appreciation and the dedication and commitment that our Tuskegee Airmen did years and years ago by them Air Force painting one of their planes with the red tail. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. For more information on the U.S. Mint State Quarter Series, visit their website, usmint.gov. For more information on the topics covered today, visit the following websites, tuskegeeairmen.org, pritzkermilitary.org, freedomridesmuseum.org, history.org, tuskegee.edu, britannica.com, nationalww2museum.org, military.org. Check out the website for the Tuskegee Airmen National Historic Site at nps.gov. There's several really good movies that I recommend checking out. Red Tails, The Tuskegee Airmen, the PBS series of The Tuskegee Airmen, the History Channels, The Tuskegee Airmen, A Legacy of Courage. 
quarter miles travel would like to extend a very special thank you to the Atlanta chapter of Tuskegee Airmen, Pritzker Military Museum in Chicago, and to my guests, W.O. Smith, Larry Bussey, and Valda Montgomery. Please subscribe to this podcast for notifications of future shows on the U.S. Mint Quarter Series.